From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll tell you about an event this weekend that aims to build awareness and help end child abuse and neglect. Then we'll explore some of the stereotypes and myths around human trafficking that can prevent systemic change. Because there is a disconnect between the vision or the narrative of trafficking and then the reality of trafficking, it means that the policy that's in place doesn't really address or target where trafficking is primarily happening. We'll learn about a group putting on surprise music shows around the city. Plus, tell you about a book filled with images of Milwaukee taken throughout the mid-1900s. To me, it's an art. It's just, it's way of seeing downtown in a way that is completely different from today. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Many survivors of child abuse and neglect can go for years without sharing their experiences and without receiving the help they need. The National Foundation to End Child Abuse and Neglect is dedicated to addressing that issue. They highlight the long-term physical, mental, and public health impacts of abuse, in part through community fundraising walks called Walk Together. They're holding one this Saturday in Milwaukee. To share more about Walk Together Milwaukee and the issues surrounding child abuse and neglect, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski is joined by Candace Sanchez, Scott Kinderman, and Christina Trinidad. All three are survivors and advocates involved in Walk Together Milwaukee. A note to our listeners, this conversation includes personal stories of child abuse and neglect. So Candace, we'll start with you. What is Walk Together Milwaukee and its goal? Yes, so NCAN is the national foundation focused on driving change through raising significant dollars to fund our prevention, education, research, and advocacy to really help end child abuse and neglect. And the Walk Together, it's an event to celebrate the strength of child abuse survivors while we bring community together to really promote and create the cultural change because it is a taboo topic. You know, it makes people uncomfortable to talk about their abuse, whether it's sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, all the types of abuse, right, and the effects that it has on us. So it's a celebration. So Walk Together Milwaukee, this is our second annual walk. Last year I brought it, um, and I'm excited. It's coming up in less than a week, so it's almost here. Yes. (laughs) So I feel like many people have a good general picture of what child abuse looks like, but can you share more about the awareness that you're raising for abuse and neglect? And what are some definitions that our listeners can work with or or work to recognize when it comes to this instead of assuming what the picture might look like? Yeah, I think child abuse and neglect, it's been perceived as a like social or legal problem, right? But research has told us, professionals have told us that it's really a health mental health and public health problem. Like that's really what it is, but it's treatable, it's preventable. And so, I mean, during COVID, it's clearly, we have seen many children have lost those connections and relationships and they felt lost. They felt we couldn't help them, report them or support them. And so we, children, their voices, as many survivors' voices always go unheard until it's too late. And so that's why the walk is so important for that awareness, prevention, education, and just, again, to bring community together. We also have Scott Kinderman and Christina Trudadad here who are involved and being recognized at this walk. And I would love for you two to contribute to this next question in how we typically 
talk about child abuse and neglect outside of the healing and advocacy space, which all three of you are very much a part of. But what are we missing or, or have you seen a shift in the way this issue is addressed? Um, I would say oh, there's there's so many things that are missing. Um, people don't pay attention to the behavior of children. Um, they tend to like fade away from parents or fade away from uh, friends or even teachers and people don't pay attention to the school grades. It's more of um, it's the kid being um, the one at fault and they're refusing to pay attention rather than what's go really going on with their mental state or going on at home. Um, there's not the proper questions being asked of why this student is failing or why this student's shifting away from everybody. So there needs to be more questions of what's going on with the kid rather than um, accusing the kid, victim blaming. I, I agree. What I think is missing most is trauma awareness and the reactions that when you're talking about the kids who are in school and they're acting out or they are, or maybe they're hitting someone or re, they're reacting to situations and they're being punished. Not only are they being punished, but they're the ones suffering at home or at the hand of a different adult. And unfortunately, it does exist too occasionally. It's even within the schools. So that is the biggest thing I think that is missing is the awareness that past circumstances create behaviors now that we carry forward. And that definitely plays into survivors, yes. how they see themselves, how they cope with daily life, where they are with coming to terms with what happened to them, which was no fault of their own, but there's still the blame game mentally, whether it's intrinsic or other people are placing that blame, right? So mm -hmm. when it comes to survivor healing, where are we still falling short when it comes to outreach, when it comes to peer support, maybe? You both are involved in working with other survivors. Yes. What do you think is most helpful to, to bring people into the fold, so to speak? Empathy and compassion. Many therapists actually do recognize the, you know, and they come from a place of empathy. The last thing a person who's been abused, uh, assaulted, needs is sympathy. If you ever watch Brene Brown's YouTube video about the difference between sympathy and empathy, it really connects. And you understand why it is so important to have a connection to the person, the survivor. So many of them, in what I've discovered, feel alone. So many people have carried this alone internally for years. I talked to a person on Saturday when I was in the emergency room that it, it had been 30 years since they were molested and never talked about it. And they were there as a support person to another person. They are the one who ended up being supported more than the person who was in the hospital. And... It's way too common that people feel alone. They don't. They they carry guilt. They carry shame. They carry the I'm not worthy. I'm not um, all of this, and it all leads to issues. And when I was in your podcast, I call it hitting the wall. And you just so many times you feel like you have power, and then you, something happens. You hit this wall, and it all goes away. And I was just going to add, Scott. This is Candace. That between the three, that's how the connection happens. When you find another survivor that is brave enough, courageous enough to speak out, that gives you the strength to be brave enough, to be courageous enough to speak out. And that's the ripple effect. I think we've kind of, the three of us, that's how we all encountered one another is through the power of our own story, but then giving power to someone else because so many of us live in silence. And with the walk and NCAN, you know, they basically say we are louder than silence and together we are stronger. And to me, I love the fact that that's really what this walk is all about and the work that we're all doing related to child abuse and neglect. So I, I'm just so proud of this 
this core group here. <laughs> I was going to, this is Christina, I was going to say uh, this past year, Candace is actually the one that's been motivating me more and more to come out. Um, this is the first time I've ever talked about, like, my child abuse aspect of my life. It's always been mainly my sexual assault. And with Candace, it's like now it's like, oh, I'm more comfortable coming out because she's a fellow survivor. So it's like she made me more comfortable about being open about my story. So that's basically what we're trying to do for others is trying to get them to feel comfortable to come out about their story. And it's okay if you're, you know, this is Candace again, if you're living, you know, still quiet, it's okay to be quiet, but just know that there's other survivors that will just stand with you, right? Arm in arm. And you don't have to speak up. You don't have to tell your story. But I've like, I've always advocated for you just tell one person, one other fellow survivor, and you'll just instantly form a bond and connection that is just undeniable and unbreakable. I have a saying I like to use that's that which you can give voice to loses its power over you. Mm. The ability to share, even if it's that one person mm-hmm. in a safe space, in a safe space. Um, is unbelievably powerful. And then as you can tell that story, if you're comfortable in that realm, as you tell your story more and more, you take the power back in your life that someone took away from you. Mm-hmm. Well, and I thank the three of you for being here and for being vulnerable yes. and sharing your stories. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners do as well. And maybe this is reaching someone who needs it. If you're just joining us, I'm Lake Effects Audrey Nowakowski, and with me is Candace Sanchez, an advocate and event lead for Walk Together Milwaukee. Also here with us in studio is Scott Kinderman and Christina Trinidad, both are survivors of child abuse and advocates who are being recognized at the upcoming Walk Together event. Scott, I'd love to address you specifically. You're a male survivor, and men face additional stigma. There's underrepresentation, fewer safe spaces to be vulnerable for men. Can you share how this impacted you, especially as a young kid? It wasn't spoken about. Um, I can remember what I went through. The, the basics is I was molested by two of my mother's boyfriends. And in the end, there was nobody to talk to. And even the person who was supposed to be my support person, which was my mother, basically told me to bury it. And this was in eight, 1980-ish and stuff and so forth. And actually even it wasn't even present in the general discussions and there I think there was a TV special once on uh, Ted Danson is the one that actually who played a character who abused his daughter and that was one of the first times it was ever publicly kind of a topic the yeah it wouldn't be spoken about and I carried it for 35 years before I began the healing journey 35 well, years 35 yeah. years so how did your healing journey begin? Um, I know that's a loaded mm, question. <laughs> it's in a way, if you think about, you know, the image of the dikes in Holland and whatever, you know, the, the big dams, the little boy putting his fingers in the holes, little bits uh, would come out over time. And you just remember, or, but they were always, it was never there. I got fortunate enough to do some personal and professional work that um, really had a profound effect. And it was a three-day intense thing. Somehow it all came together for me. Monday morning, it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday morning, I'm in the shower, and I'm about to think, and I had a thought, what a waste. And literally, I'm glad it was in a hotel shower with unlimited hot water because I sat on the floor and just wept for about 45 minutes. And it was that moment when I chose to begin the journey. And it wasn't easy. There's a lot to, you know, a lot you go through. You have to acknowledge for yourself. 
there is personal forgiveness, there is forgiving of the other person, there is do you grant absolution to the other person? Many, many things come together. Christina, if you're comfortable, would you mind sharing when you decided to begin your healing journey to not just go from recognizing but serving as an advocate as well? Um, I want to say it was after my two girls were born. I just got back from grocery shopping, uh, being a single mom. So to come home with a bunch of groceries just by myself and trying to support for my kids. And I'm, you know, just looking at my girls and I'm like, why why do I let somebody that hurt me take over my life the way that they took over? I'm like, and I, I'm, I'm here not just for myself, but I'm here for my girls, you know, and they shouldn't see me like this. I shouldn't let somebody take so much control over myself, you know, my feelings, my emotions, the things that I do in life. So that was the day I decided I'm going to start healing. I'm going to start doing more for myself, more for my kids. And I want to help others because I didn't have that much support, you know, going through this whole situation. So that was the day I decided I'm going to start healing. This is my time to take over my life. On that note of not feeling supported, having limited resources, uh, you, Christina, and you, Scott, you work together to help support others. Can you share a bit more about your support group that you started and, and how it came about? Oh, Scott, you started it. Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> um, well, actually, Candace and I are on the board of directors of Belief Survivors in Racine. And in conversations, it was we discovered that, you know, it's a nonprofit. Funds are always limited. And, you know, try and you do the best you can with what you get. I recognize they had a waiting list for people. Their services are free to the people who are, you know, to survivors. But there was a wait list for the services to be provided. And for a person who has just experienced an terribly traumatic experience, waiting can almost be worse than the original event. So we reached out to NAMI, which is the National Alliance for Mental Illness in Racine, and we coordinated together to create a peer-led support group for survivors of sexual assault and abuse. We acted fast. We made it happen in less than three months from when the first word, and there normally it can take a year to start a new support group. So, and now we meet uh, every, two uh, weeks. actually. Every, every two weeks. Every yep. two weeks, the second and fourth Friday of every, every month, and uh, it's making a difference. And now you see why they're getting the Unspoken Hero Awards <laughs> at the walk, yes. because like we mentioned, it's a it's a ripple effect. And I have seen both of these individuals, these survivors thrive. They're both stepping out and speaking out. That's why they're so deserving of the Unspoken Hero Award that will be celebrated at the Walk Together Milwaukee next weekend. And I can't wait to give them those awards. Thank you. Me either. <laughs> <laughs> With the Unspoken Hero Award, that's a perfect segue, Candice. What does it mean for you both? Because that is a big journey to be recognized for your work and to be comfortable to be in an environment with other advocates and survivors and to recognize yourself and your worth, right? Yes. It's humbling. Um, we don't do the work for the award. We do the work to make a difference. And I do the work because there's no voice there for me. So I'm a voice for others. And the recognition is awesome, um, and that's also part of the healing journey. They say when you've, not everybody does it, but when you heal far enough, one of the natural progressions is to step into advocacy. How about for you, Christina? Um, for me, it's, it is, it's very emotional, and 
in a very positive way because if you would have asked me five years ago if I was going to receive something like this, I would have told you there's no way. (laughs) So for me to receive something like this is a big step in my life um, because I struggled for so many years and um, especially doing it alone and raising kids by myself and um, until I met my husband. So it's this is this is a, a great thing for me to receive after struggling for so long and taking a long time to heal. So I'm I'm ex- excited and so blessed and so thankful I met Candace because she is definitely a shining star in my life. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, Candace, Scott, and Christina, thank you all so much for being here today and for sharing your stories. I greatly appreciate it. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Candace Sanchez is an advocate and lead organizer for Walk Together Milwaukee, happening this Saturday at Lake Vista Park in Oak Creek. Scott Kinderman and Christina Trinidad are survivors and advocates who are being recognized at the event with the Unspoken Hero Award. They joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. If someone is hurting, abusing, or neglecting you, or if you suspect a child is being abused, neglected, or exposed to an unsafe situation, call 1-800-422-4453 for immediate help. You can find more local resources at wuwm.com. misconceptions about what human trafficking looks like and who can be a victim. These ideas can prevent systemic change that could protect people from being trafficked. Dr. Sarah McKinnon is an associate professor in rhetoric, politics, and culture at UW-Madison. She's an expert on immigration and refugee issues, gender-based violence, and international global politics. She joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to talk about breaking down stereotypes about human trafficking. A note to our listeners, this conversation includes the topic of sexual violence. So when we're specifically talking about human trafficking, our minds go to these long-standing imagery campaigns that you see on commercials, for example, or on posters at bus stops, this narrative of someone being snatched away. So what's the context of this long-standing imagery we associate with this issue, at least here in America? I mean, there is a longstanding history that I think is important to understand. So if we think about U.S. immigration laws, some of the earliest immigration laws were actually about uh, trafficking. There was this fear that white women would be trafficked into the United States or trafficked out of the United States. And so they were called the white slavery laws. Um, And so that idea, I think, undergirds a lot of discussions and imagery about trafficking today. And it's very different than the reality of trafficking um, in the contemporary context. Right. So let's get into that. What are some of the key preconceptions about human trafficking that are simply wrong? Yeah. So uh, one misperception is that the primary perpetrators of trafficking are men. Yes, men are perpetrators of trafficking, but women are absolutely involved in trafficking of other individuals as well. So that's one misconception. Um, There's another misconception that it primarily happens over or international borders. And that's a misconception that's also uh, false. 
um, trafficking happens within countries as well, and that's a really significant dynamic to consider and make sense of. There's a misperception that trafficking is largely about sex trafficking, and while sex trafficking is an important component of the landscape of trafficking, it's certainly not the only reason why uh, trafficking happens. And then lastly, there's a sense that trafficking happens just like you described by someone snatching an individual from the streets or from a, a, a place and uh, effectively kidnapping them and putting them into um, a trafficking circle. The reality is that most traffickers groom their trafficking victims, and so there's a process of grooming that goes with that. Uh, it, it, it could even be someone that someone knows for a while um, in terms of the dynamic. And so those are some large narratives and misperceptions about trafficking that can make it then challenging to actually effectively address trafficking uh, from a policy standpoint. You mentioned our loose understanding or labels and definition is impeding policy changes or helping to address this properly. So how else does the, not just the imagery, but the rhetoric and language used around human trafficking harmful to survivors? Because there is a disconnect between the vision or the narrative of trafficking and then the reality of trafficking, it means that the policy that's in place doesn't really address or target where trafficking is primarily happening. And so we don't, for example, get a lot of attention paid to the agricultural industry and the prevalence of trafficking in that industry um, when we're talking about trafficking. This is a, a place where you know, this happens because there's so much attention to sex trafficking. There's so much attention to, to trafficking of youth that adult men, for example, aren't considered a part of the picture of trafficking. So this is, that's, I think, one place where we can really see that happen. In terms of like policy related to immigration, the United States does have protections in place for victims of trafficking, immigration protections. So uh, contexts where um, someone can apply for uh, basically a non-immigrant visa and then a later a permanent residency. But in order to do that, um, the individual has to be working with law enforcement to address the context of trafficker. So typically it's law enforcement that would bring someone's name forward for these visas, either the U visa or the T visa, and they have to be working with law enforcement to address it. And the, the reality is a, a lot of people who are trafficked are just not in a context where they feel um, secure enough or even have access to law enforcement in order to, to make that happen. And then there's a lot of fear of what that means to um, continue to communicate and participate in the, you know, in the criminal trial, for example, or in what, you know, the sentencing, the processing. So that becomes a, a, another challenge for individuals to receive protections. Another thing where I think there's a lot of confusion is the difference between trafficking and smuggling. Can you get into that a little more? Yeah, and I'll say at the outset that it's much blurrier. The line between trafficking and smuggling is much blurrier than the vision of it, especially in the contemporary context. But for a loose definition, we can say that trafficking happens when someone is put in a context of force for work situations. So there's a lack of consent to that. That context of consent is really important. The force is really important. Smuggling happens when 
someone pays uh, an individual to move them across borders. And smuggling is typically in a context of across international borders. So in the context of immigration today, especially in the United States, and especially as we're thinking about the Americas, a significant portion of individuals who ultimately may arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border to apply for asylum probably have had to work with a smuggler at some point to, to make that movement. Um, just because of the context of immigration today, it's really hard to move across international borders um, without some guidance. Criminal organizations are now highly involved in that process and insist that uh, migrants pay them to move across those borders. And so individuals who are using a smuggler, who kind of are in this industry, are highly precarious to human trafficking as well. And so this is a, a dynamic that I think is important to consider, that, that connection between um, trafficking and smuggling. So there's a lot of discussion of the prevalence of trafficking for immigrants. What forms of trafficking are most prevalent for immigrants and refugees, especially in the United States here? Yeah, so I had mentioned that the agricultural industry is, is really significant um, in, in this context because of who is arriving to as a laborer in the United States. But most recently, there's been a lot of attention paid to the experiences of unaccompanied minors that were a part of the kind of immigration reforms and policy implementations um, since 2014, so Central American unaccompanied minors. And one of the things that some investigative reporting has recently uncovered is that a lot of youth that are in the program for unaccompanied minors who now are living with a sponsor in the United States are actually very young, 14, 15, and working in some of the U.S.'s biggest corporations. So um, the cereal that you eat right now may have been packaged by an unaccompanied minor who is now working, going to school during the day and then working at night. And so um, there were some reports, particularly by the New York Times about a month ago, that really um, shed light on this context. And the question arises, is, is this force? Is this voluntary? And so here is another moment where we can see some of the blurry lines between um, uh, smuggling, trafficking, consent, force, some of these dynamics that make it really hard to uh, address through policy the realities of the situation. So I'm learning more about all the nuances and the issues now that crosses gender, ages, can you share some context on how human trafficking has traditionally been viewed and handled in the United States? Like, for example, gender is not a category in the UN refugee definition that the U.S. uses to evaluate asylum seekers' claims. So how have we treated refugees fleeing gender-related persecution or when it's related to human trafficking? Yeah, in a lot of ways, the conversation about asylum and trafficking have been quite separate. Um, there are separate immigration protections in the United States, although certainly victims of trafficking can apply for asylum. Uh, it's typically not that they are applying for asylum because they've been trafficked. They're applying for asylum because they flee persecution in their home country um, and are seeking refugee protection on, on those grounds. And so in, in some ways, I think that's 
one of the challenges that these programs have been quite separate. And it's interesting because there is a lot of attention paid to sex trafficking in the United States, a lot of concern, a lot of policy work around that. And yet when we look at the context for women who are fleeing gender-based violence in their home country, so in this context, I'm talking about rape and sexual assault by military officials or police, decade-long experiences of intimate violence um, at the hands of one's husband um, in a context where you can't go to the police and say, you know, please help me. You can't expect that a judge will say, yes, you can divorce your husband. These are just not contexts that are that are possible um, and a, a range of other types of gender based violence. So the context is such that for asylum seekers fleeing that form of these forms of violence, gender based violence, there really aren't a lot of protections. And so we have a lot of attention paid to sex trafficking, um, but when a woman who is fleeing gender-based violence comes to a US official and says, I, I can't return to my home country, I will experience violence, um, I fear persecution, the US's answer has been largely to turn their backs to women fleeing gender-based violence. There's this obvious disconnect what else is holding us back from taking gender-based violence seriously? You know, is it our our frame of reference that we look at when it comes to this? I think there are a number of things that are playing out, but I think with gender-based violence in particular, it's sticky because U.S. policymakers, U.S. officials cannot say that gender-based violence doesn't happen in this country. Right? When one in four women are sexually assaulted and will experience intimate violence at some point in their lives. And so that dynamic, I think, is really challenging um, when someone arrives at the U.S. border and says, I, I am fleeing this form of violence in my country. Please give me, um, give me refuge. Because if U.S. officials were to, then perhaps the mirror would have to be turned back on the national context. The other dynamic, and this is kind of more of my suspicious uh, lens coming into, into play, but I also believe it's about a fear of um, black and brown bodies and uh, the fear of reproductivity and the changing face of the U.S. nation. That if we were to say uh, as a country that fleeing intimate violence and sexual assault, these are forms of persecution that we will recognize as political persecution, then that would really give space for many, many women around the world to arrive and seek protection on those grounds. And in my research, always at the base of uh, the kind of politicians' ideas about gender-based violence and immigration protections, there is a concern about the fear of brown and black reproductivity and the fear of the changing face of the US nation. So in many ways, this is about whiteness. Um, I think that's a really significant analysis to overlay, especially when we look at the trajectory of some of these protections. Well, Sarah, I want to thank you so much for helping us break some of this down. I know there's so much more to discuss, but thanks so much for your time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Dr. Sarah McKinnon is an associate professor at UW-Madison. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. 
In about 10 minutes, we'll learn about a new book that shares images of Milwaukee life from the mid-1900s, taken by everyday photographers. But first, we'll look at a group putting on surprise shows at surprising venues right here in Milwaukee. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Milwaukee music lovers have an abundance of venues and artists they can see performing live in the city. But many of us end up going to the same venues with the same artists time and time again. A new organization in town is looking to change that. So Far Sounds specializes in putting on surprise shows in interesting venues. The organization was featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine, and local lead Sam Brunelli joins me now to share more. Sam, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about uh, So Far and uh, kind of get the word out about what we're doing here in Milwaukee. Yeah, so tell us a bit about the concept behind this. Uh, Generally speaking, we host secret pop-up concerts all around the city in super unique venues. So, so far, Taking a Step Back is a global organization that hosts uh, these concerts in over 200 cities in over 13 countries across the globe. And I'm just running the local local chapter here in Milwaukee. And we're just kind of getting started off the ground, Um, not doing a ton of shows as of yet, but... uh, have about three shows a month in all sorts of different unique spaces. As you say, this is something that is going on in a variety of different cities. Um, Here in Milwaukee, I think one of the things I first thought about was, what is the attraction for artists who generally would promote their shows? The attraction for artists is that you get a really amazing listening room in a city that you might not have played in before. For example, I've played in a band that has been on the other side of it and playing so far shows. And it's amazing to go into a city that you might not have any fan base in yet, or you're just a, you know, a young artist kind of starting off your career. Um, So far is a really good outlet for an artist to go into a city and say, Hey, I don't have to promote the show. I can play it so far. And I know there's going to be a packed house, you know, a listening room environment for me to play my songs in. Um, so it's a great tool for artists to kind of grow their uh, their careers in different cities and their their fan bases. You mentioned that a lot of the time so far is utilizing spaces that uh, we we might not always think of as traditional venues. Uh, we're talking about playing in houses, gardens, uh, of course, more traditional places like bars. What are some of the interesting spots that you've found here in Milwaukee? We've done so many cool shows in Milwaukee. Um, some of my favorites are probably uh, yoga studios. I feel like those are really intimate, interesting settings. Obviously, yeah, you know, bars, restaurants where you wouldn't necessarily have music in an intimate setting. It's always very fun. But uh, I also, we've done hotels. We've done the St. Kate Hotel, a pop-up show in there. You name it, we've done it. really interesting shows. So in general, would you say these are shows that are featuring out-of-town bands, or are you also featuring local talent? 
I'd say it's a pretty close to 50-50 mix on touring versus local. Each show has three artists play at it. My super lame comparison is like a, it's like a beer flight, but with live music. You get three different bands and they each play a 20-minute set. So you kind of get a taste of three different genres. You know, it could be a touring punk band, local folk singer, and, uh, you know, out-of-state jazz group. You know, any combination of genres. And the idea is you get, you know, 20 minutes of each show. So if it's even if it's not your favorite thing, you know, you can sit quietly for 20 minutes and uh, experience something that you might not experience, you know, on your normal night. Sure. Now, as you look toward uh, kind of expanding in Milwaukee, you've said uh, right now there's a few shows that are happening a month. What what do you see as the ultimate goal for so far in Milwaukee? Ultimately, I would like so far to be something that you could go to every week. The consistency is what I'm looking for. Instead of doing a show here and there, uh, making it a consistent thing that people know, hey, every weekend... I could go to a SoFar show if I have a night free. I think the goal there is with consistency of bringing more artists into Milwaukee. You know, the more shows we do, the more touring artists uh, can come to Milwaukee and experience all the cool parts of the city. All right. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me. Sam Brunelli is the local lead for So Far Sounds in Milwaukee, which was featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up next, we'll look at a book that documents life in mid-century Milwaukee through photography. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Since 2016, Adam Levin has been collecting images of mid-century Milwaukee from estate sales, donations, and even eBay. Altogether, these images create a catalog that documents Milwaukee life through the lens of everyday people. His collection was recently released in the form of Kodachrome Milwaukee, a book of about 150 images documenting decades-old festivals, Bucks games, house parties, and much more. Levin joins Lake Effect Sam Woods to share how he found these images and what the project means to him. You've recently published a book called Kodachrome Milwaukee, which uh, is a collection of old images from 20th century Milwaukee and the people who lived here who were mostly just living their lives, whether at parades or at festivals or even in their own in their own basements. Um, some photos were shot by a photographer. Others were just regular people who enjoyed taking photos on the street or um, in their homes. But before we get into what's in the book itself, uh, what does Kodachrome mean? Like, what does the word mean? Um, Kodachrome is the brand name for a color reversal film introduced by Eastman Kodak in 
1935. It was one of the first successful color materials and was used for both cinematography and still photography. And for many years, Kodachrome was widely used for professional color photography, especially for images intended for publication in print. So, so in other words, this is kind of a, a type of film used for old um, photographs that um, now would live on slides that you had to, that were usually living in someone's basement or, right. or in a, a historical society or library or something and mm -hmm. collecting dust and you yep. had to kind of digitize them for this book. Correct. Um, I have found these images at estate sales, donations from families who for whatever reason did not want the slides anymore. I found some images on eBay too. And um, what fascinates me is these images have been sitting around for decades and nobody's been able to see them for either for whatever reason. Um, some people don't have the time or want to purchase the technology to digitize them. Mm -hmm. It's a hobby of mine. Uh, I actually have two scanners. I mean, that's how Hardcore, I am into it. <laughs> so, um, but the families who donate these slides to me, I offer to digitize them and put them on a flash drive so they can have a copy. If they're going to give them to me, the least I can do is scan them and give them a flash drive so they can see these images. Yeah. I wanted to put 200 images in this book, mm -hmm. but... The publisher's limit was 150, so I had to cut that down. Yeah. Well, let's get into what the what is in the book. So um, I know when I was looking through it, there's images that someone today living in Milwaukee might might recognize, and and uh, or, or of events that uh, someone living in Milwaukee might recognize, like Brady Street Festival, German Fest, a Bucks game. Um, but there's also images of. Uh, things like basement parties and just right. kind of like people shooting pool, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what's in this book? Sure. I mean, there's random chapters. There are 15 chapters in all. Um, we have uh, a photographer that roamed the streets of Milwaukee back in from the 40s till the early 90s. His name is Ray Chopper Ray. Um, and that's the first chapter. Then I have State Fair, Parks, um, Speedway, uh, Brady Street, German Fest, basement parties, as you mentioned, downtown parades, the Milwaukee Arena before it became the Mecca. Um, there's a couple Bucks game slides in there from, I want to say 1970 to 72. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, the Domes, Aerial views of downtown from the 1950s. Uh, I have just one chapter that's just random images of Milwaukee. Mayfair Mall's Ice Chalet, which was in existence from 1973 till 1986. Capitol Court, which no longer exists. Um, and uh, the last chapter is about County Stadium in the 1950s. So um, there's a lot of a lot of stuff, random images here. Um, again, I could have easily done 200, but 
that just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So. yeah. In in addition to having a bunch of different types of uh, events, as, as you mentioned, that are here, there's a bunch of different like, people just doing kind of random everyday things, right? So right. you mentioned basement parties and yeah. shooting pool, but then also just you know, someone like having a cigarette in their car or something mm-hmm. or, yeah. or just like, you know, walking around at a, at a, at a parade. And I know we were, we were talking about before, um, that you have, uh, you, you've had a long interest in history yourself. And so those mm-hmm. kinds of, when you see an image of someone sitting in the park, for example, you're kind of wondering like, okay, what was their, what was their day like? What brought right. them, brought, brought them to that? Um, to that point, but you mentioned uh, Ray Chopin was one of the one of the photographers that we we do know of, um, and a lot of these were just unknown unknown photographers. But what do we know about about these photographers in general and the types of lives that they lived and their uh, interests and and all that? Ray was the only photographer in this book that roamed the streets on a daily basis and took photos. Today, everybody does that. But back in the <laughs> yeah. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and part of the 80s, people didn't really just roam Wisconsin Avenue and take photos. But to me, it's an art. It's just, it's way of seeing downtown in a way that is completely different from today. Um, the other f- images are family slides. Um, of random places that the family went to and they were not professional. They were just doing it for fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've mentioned that um, there was a number of images that did not make it into the book. I think you said you wanted to put in 200. Can you talk about the images that maybe that you wanted to um, have in the book uh, but didn't make it? Um, again, they're just random images that could have fit in some of these chapters, but some of the reasons uh, that they didn't make the book is because of the size, and with the publisher, it didn't mm-hmm. work sure. with them, and um, I was a little concerned that they kept cutting photos that I wanted in the book. I, you know, I mean, I have to have that one in there, I'm thinking to myself, so mm-hmm. it was like trying to choose, you know, who's your favorite, but uh, finally, you know, I just had to get it down to 150. So, yeah, I mean, I could put on a slideshow for a week, I think, with all yeah. the images I have. So. Yeah. Well, you have an event coming up at, at Boswell, right, where some of those some of those images that didn't make it into the book will we'll see the light of day. Yeah. Um, the book launch is uh, July 21st at Boswell from 6.30 to 7.30. And for the first half an hour, I'm going to talk about um, Kodachrome and uh, my hobby. Um, And the second half, I am going to show about, I'm not going to get through 200 images, but that's what I have on my flash drive. Um, And I don't think anybody wants to sit around for that long to see 200 images (laughs) but um, you were interested in those images maybe someone else true um so i'm going to show those and um those are the images that did not make the book so unfortunately i cannot use a old time projector because something could go wrong with those they're so old yeah i don't want to take that risk so uh, i would love to be there 
with a projector and, and dim the lights and dim the light and have a, like have they the did hum in, of the machine right and, like yeah. back in the 60s and 70s how they did that um but we're gonna do this with a computer um ah, shame 21st i know century. but yeah. i can't take the risk of having Ooh. something go wrong with a projector <laughs> I want to. I want to ask you. You know, there's. You've been collecting these images since uh, 2016, right? Yeah, I started really getting into it about that time. Yeah. You know, um, and I just, I like history, but I find that these images, you know, haven't seen the light of day, you know, for decades. And you know, there's some interesting images online, but you know, those are images that I've. I've seen over mm-hmm. and over, you know, anybody can go to Pinterest, anyone can go to the UWM site and pull photos, but I find it more of a organic way of showing these images uh, that should be showcased. Yeah. Um, well, I want to ask while, you know, since 2016, while you've been collecting images for this book, yeah. um, or at least that became part of this book, what were you like reflecting on? What was going through your mind? Um, were there? Do you see Milwaukee in a new way? Like you see a building that was in in one of these images, and you kind of you know you 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 see your image almost on on that kind of present day. What you're what right. you're looking at? Um, to me, does it change your perspective at all? Maybe. Um, to me, it's more of oh, that was there mm-hmm. before. Because I'm always curious, what was there before? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what was there? I mean, what was where we are today? You know, um, it just interesting to see what it used to be, and a time that I wasn't even alive yet. You know, so, and then when I do find images that are closer to uh, when I was born in the early seventies, um, that fascinates me too because um, I only have vague memories like anyone else who was a child, you know, of their city and their family at that time. So, um, so it, it just, uh, it fascinates me, but I don't expect everybody to feel that way. You know, nobody's required to, it's just, sure. It's just a hobby of mine. Well, thank you, Adam, for sharing both your time with me today and, and on Lake Effect, as well as your hobby with uh, the rest of us through this through this book. It's uh, I can say that I enjoyed flipping through it, and as well, a history appreciator of history myself, it's it's works like these that bring that kind of history alive and make it accessible. And I just want to say I, I appreciate you and oh, your you. time that went into this work. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Adam Levin is a local historian and author of the book Kodachrome Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll hear from the first female senior rabbi in a reform or conservative synagogue in the metro Milwaukee area. Plus, we'll bring you a new Sounds Like Milwaukee that features a voice you may recognize. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.